Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogeny Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 9th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. As most of our forum members know, Brother Ryan, a friend common to both Arthur Lee and myself, has been teaching Kabbalah in his videos. Although he denies it, that is what he's teaching. Through the teachings of Neville Goddard and Napoleon Hill and other mystics, this material was also the beginning of the Abundant Life, Prosperity Gospel, and I Am movement sort of teachings that had permeated corners of so-called Judeo-Christianity. This is Jewish materialism and Jewish mysticism which has been repackaged and given a Christian appearance by taking certain scriptures out of context. Ryan had also been criticizing me for months without mentioning my name. Even on videos where he had signs up promoting my ministry and he was still friendly and personable to me. I have determined that he did that only to attract some of my listeners since seeing Ryan promote Christogenia gave them an indication of his agreement with me when he didn't agree at all and an appearance of approbation on my part for his teachings when I didn't even listen. Ryan teaches that the God inside each of us can create our own reality and that when we are blessed we ourselves created those blessings. Ryan teaches that by controlling your imagination you can somehow change your world and your financial status and the world around you. This is all Talmudic bullshit. There are many other things which Ryan is teaching that also fall into this category. Now, I've been making a lot of remarks these last four or five weeks in my podcasts. Offhand remarks, things that I'm not putting in my notes, directed at Ryan and also at Arthur Lee unfortunately. Arthur Lee had been following Ryan in these teachings for over a year. And Arthur is persuaded by him. He also began criticizing me in much the same way that Ryan had, only with much more subtlety. He also began teaching Abundant Life Prosperity Gospel and the Law of Attraction, the so-called Law of Attraction that Ryan espouses, which comes from Neville Goddard. And originally, Goddard got it from a Jew, a Jewish mystic, and originally it comes from Neoplatonism and Jewish Gnosticism. That is why I did the recent Goddard podcast last month titled The Gospel of Godard or The Gospel of Christ. I have been trying to convince these men 
of their error in a gentle manner back when we were together last summer, but they rejected me. When Brother Ryan realized that I was never going to follow along with or support the heresies that he has taken to teaching, and when my wife Melissa began to openly despise him for his hypocrisy in their personal friendship, he made a video. He made a video called Belief Burns Boats. And my Goddard podcast was my initial public response. He has been slandering me ever since. He even tried to tell people that I, that it was my behavior which separated us. Although my behavior, as well as Melissa's, has not changed since Ryan was a house guest of ours for nine or ten months in 2014 and 2015 when I saved him from being homeless. The history of videos on Ryan's YouTube page clearly shows that he did he did separate with me over belief and not over behavior. And the claims of my poor behavior can be easily refuted since for the past few months Clifton Emmaheiser has been living here in my home and for the last several weeks Sonny Eanes has been living here in my home and they observe my behavior every day. I can't burp in my home without one of them hearing it. They can attest to our behavior. Author Lee decided to follow along with Ryan because he accepted those things which Ryan teaches and I don't. I reject them. There are other circumstances in Author's life whereby he has actually wanted to believe that Ryan's teachings are true. Author Lee has been trying to manifest his own abundant life to manifest his own blessings with his own imagination, putting Ryan's teachings into practice. But to date, it has not worked out for him. And I can be confident that it will not work out for him. If he has any material blessings in the near future, or in the future at all, it should be through the work of his own hands. Let him work to pay for his Birkenstocks. And it will never be by some self-manifested miracle. Author can do what he wants, but I financed and I own Identity Struggle. I registered and paid for the name. I developed the website and I host it on my servers with my own time and my own expense, or actually the expense of my supporters. So I cannot have his heresies associated with my name. That is why I pulled the website. And that is why I also removed all of Author's materials. All of them. Even those which are indeed of value. Author did some very good things. But for that reason, I pulled all of his materials from Christogenia. Except for his forum posts, I left those. I pulled his blog from the forum. 
It was not easy for me to make that decision. These people were dear to me. They were dear friends. Author's wife, his, his three lovely children, they were dear friends to me. So it wasn't easy for me to make that decision. But it was the only choice that I could make. I'm not saying this to look for approval. I'm only saying this to inform my listeners why this website went down and why the accusations of censorship against me are false. If a man wants to spread heresies, in today's world he may have a right to do so, but he does not have a right to do it at my expense. No, he doesn't have that right. And it's ended. I pray that they repent. Tonight we are going to present part five of our presentations of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is subtitled Wisdom and the Power of Sin. Presenting our commentary on Ecclesiastes chapter six, I think that was last week or maybe two weeks ago, I forget already, I'm sorry. We discussed the vanity of poverty and wealth. The preacher had presented us with three examples of circumstances in the lives of men and the evils that befell two of them. The first example was of the man who, having been blessed with riches, was blessed by Yahweh in his later years to enjoy the fruits of his life's labors. That was actually at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Then there was the man who accumulated riches and was bereaved of them so that he lived his later years in want. Finally, there was the man who worked a long life and had many children but who had never enjoyed any luxuries all of the time that he lived. While it was apparent that the men of the later two examples were undergoing trials imposed upon them by Yahweh, whether or not they had sinned. It is also evident from other scriptures that the man in the first example, the rich man who enjoyed his wealth, was also being tested. But this is not evident unless we examine the law and the gospel. In the law we learn that wealth is given to men by Yahweh, so that he may establish his covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Understanding that, wealthy men should abide the gospel of Christ and employ their wealth in a manner so as to build his kingdom, seeking to store treasure in heaven rather than to increase their earthly riches even further. So this might be the most difficult of these three examples for a man to live up to. Although we are not told specifically, the second man may well have lost his wealth because of his own sin. As we read in the curses of disobedience in Deuteronomy, that as a punishment for sin, strangers would enjoy the fruit of a man's labor rather than the sinner himself. Yet the third man apparently never had any luxury in his earthly life 
because he kept his eyes in his head, as we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 14. And in the preacher's example of this man, that better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire, as it says in reference to him in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 9. But all of this is vanity, as the preacher also explains. All of the circumstances of this life are temporary, and ultimately men are subjected to them for the glory of God. The rich man who enjoyed his wealth shall die, depart from this world empty-handed, and be judged for his works. The apparent sinner who lost his wealth is empty-handed and shall die, and he will be judged for his works, and also for his sins if he had not yet repented. Likewise, the man who never had any enjoyment in his life will die and be judged for his works. However, he seems to have a great advantage, never having sought worldly gain in the first place. Even if his apparent state, his apparent condition in this life, is worse than if he had been an abortion, as the preacher himself compares him. In any event, the preacher asked at the end of chapter 6, For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life which he spends as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? And of course, only Yahweh God himself knows what is good for each of us, or how we should be tried in this world. As we read in Revelation chapter 13, If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints. Whether we as Christians are to be tried in success, or in poverty, or in life or in death, we do not know and neither can we know. And as the preacher also informed us, we cannot tell our futures, and therefore we should not be confident of where we shall be tomorrow. For that reason, as we had discussed in relation to these examples, the Apostle James wrote in his epistle, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there for a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And since we cannot tell our own futures, <coughs> I'm sorry, where we will be, or what state we shall be in, neither can we know what things we may need tomorrow. For that, Paul of Tarsus said in Romans, 
Likewise, the Spirit also helps us with our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. As the preacher had shown, it is God who consigns men to their worldly fate, and it is useless for men to contend with God. So when men are truly spiritual, when they are guided by the Spirit of Yahweh, they inquire in prayer of that Spirit what it is that they should do each day, not following their own imaginations and their own desires, but seeking the kingdom of heaven. So Christ said in Matthew chapter 6, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, all of the daily needs of your life. Take therefore no thought on the morrow. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow. You don't imagine material wealth that we're going to have tomorrow. You don't imagine that. That is not Christian. That is Jewish materialism, Arthur Lee. Brother Ryan. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow. For tomorrow shall take care of, shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto today is the evil thereof. Christian seeking to be spiritual also strive to keep the law as Paul had said in Romans for we know that the law is spiritual but I am carnal sold under sin so in the opening verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 in response to the vanity of man regardless of his worldly circumstances whether he lives in a broke down single wide by a cell phone transmission tower or in a mansion at the beach. The preacher advised that a good name is better than precious ointment and the death, the day of death, better than the day of one's birth. From his, from this, I'm sorry, from this his reader should derive the understanding that because of the vanity of this life, virtue is more important than the pursuit of worldly riches. For that the preacher had said, that better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. You are better off being happy with what you see and your present state, knowing that it's from God, than to be chasing the dreams and lusts of your imagination. For that same reason, where Yahshua Christ had exhorted his listeners to store up for themselves treasure in heaven, in Matthew chapter 6, he then said, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thy eye shall be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. The Greek word rendered as single there is haplus, which is simple or sincere. Being single, in that sense, a man certainly would be virtuous. Then the preacher proceeded, in chapter 7, to confess that a life of mourning, which, me, which 
we may interpret as seriousness or solemnity is better than a life of mirth or perhaps partying. So he said that sorrow is better than laughter for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Doing so he compared the laughter of a fool, evidently one who spent his life in mirth, to the vanity found in the crackling of thorns under a pot. Finally, where we left off with Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we saw the preacher warn against anger, and it is apparent that the proud in spirit are quick to anger, where he wrote, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So far the preacher in this chapter has admonished his readers to maintain their good names in virtue, to take life seriously rather than waste it away in mirth, and to maintain gentleness of spirit as the word of Yahweh had also said in Isaiah chapter 66, For all those things has mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith Yahweh. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. So Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Yahshua Christ wants his people to have life abundantly, but not necessarily to have a life which is abundant in material possessions. Next, in the words of the preacher, we shall see that wisdom is also better than material possessions and the need to submit oneself to the will of God. So we will commence with Ecclesiastes chapter 7 from verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause, or what is it, that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. In chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, the preacher had said that the thing that has been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Then in chapter 6, from the New American Standard Bible, whatever exists has already been named meaning that what existed in the days of the preacher had already been named 
and therefore it was already known to men in the past. So it is really nothing new. On this account, simply because we may recollect our past as having been better than our present, a phenomenon which is quite common among the men of all ages, that does not mean that it is true. There is nothing new under the sun, and all of the corruption in the world, which is now, has been here from the beginning. Furthermore, in spite of all the history which we may have and study, all we can do, as Paul of Tarsus described in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is to see through a mirror in riddles. This is because what we know about the past is related from a limited perspective even in the most comprehensive histories and myths and even in our scriptures. So the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 41 Show the former things what they may be and this is a challenge to the idolaters or to the people that think they're God. Show the former things what they be that we may consider them and know the later end of them or declare for us the things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Men do not know the past as well as they think they do. Even the past which they have experienced in their own lifetimes. You don't know it as well as you think you do. <coughs> Your one-person perspective. And the one-person perspective of all of the historians of antiquity, even though it informs us of much, it is nevertheless very limited. Now once again, the preacher professes that wisdom is more advantageous than either riches or mirth. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. By it there is profit to the living. The New American Standard Bible clarifies the intent where it says, Wisdom along with an inheritance is good, and an advantage to those who see the sun. Having an inheritance, wisdom is the best way to safeguard it. We must recall that in the life of Solomon, with his own wisdom, he himself did not safeguard his inheritance. But rather, for his sin, it was to be drastically reduced after his death. First we read in 1 Kings chapter 4, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much, and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country, and all the wisdom of Egypt. Solomon's great wisdom is then recounted in several other places, up through chapter 11. And then we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, 
women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, all the cursed women of Scripture, Sidonians and Hittites, of the nations concerning which Yahweh said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and went not fully after Yahweh, as did David his father. Then Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And Yahweh was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from Yahweh God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which Yahweh commanded. Wherefore Yahweh said unto Solomon, Forasmuch as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to, to and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding, in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. The story of Benjamin, of course. There is much to be learned of the vanity and foolishness of man in the life of Solomon. As with all of his wisdom, he nevertheless went off into sin, and his sin cost Rehoboam, his own son, the full share of his inheritance. Here, having both wisdom and wealth, Solomon teaches better than he lived. He says in verse 12, For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to them that have it. Where the preacher says that money is a defense, we should not be misled to believe that having money is a virtue. Rather, he is only making a pragmatic observation of the circumstances of life. While either wisdom or money may be employed in the defense of a man's estate, here the preacher informs us that of these, wisdom is far more excellent. So in Proverbs chapter 19 we read from the New American Standard Bible Many will entreat the favor of a generous man 
and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. Now in conclusion, in conclusion to this passage, the preacher asks a rhetorical question. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he has made crooked? The preacher had already informed us that Yahweh God himself had subjected man to vanity, where he had written, I have seen the travail, which God had given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. In chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, speaking of the vanity of the circumstances of man, the preacher said, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. Submitting to the will of God, man realizes that he cannot adapt the world to himself, but rather he must learn to acclimate himself to his condition in the world. But doing so, man should not accommodate himself to the world. For as the Apostle James warns, a friend of the world is an enemy of God. There is a difference between acclimating yourself to your circumstances and accommodating yourself to the world. So now the preacher warns of prosperity and adversity. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has also set one over against the other, to the end that no man, that man should find nothing after him. To the end that man should find nothing after him. Brenton Septuagint has the final half of this verse to read. God also has caused the one to agree with the other, meaning adversity and prosperity. For this reason, that man should find nothing after him. The word rendered as after can also mean beyond. Evidently, the preacher is saying that God causes men to suffer adversity as well as prosperity, so that man sees that there is nothing beyond God, nothing higher than God. Furthermore, it is apparent that if man had nothing but prosperity, he may think that there was more to existence than God. Perhaps he may think that his prosperity did indeed come from within himself, apart from God, that he created his own wealth, which is what man is warned against in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man suffers adversity so that he is humbled. David was humbled by adversity. And then he was granted mercy and favor. He was lifted out of his adversity. He knew that there was nothing beyond God. And for that reason did he glorify God. This we read in the 30th Psalm. O Yahweh, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Sing unto Yahweh, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness.
for his anger endures but a moment, and his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, and in my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. From this same writer, from Solomon, we read in Proverbs chapter 1, For that they hated knowledge, and did not choose the fear of Yahweh. They thought that they were gods, right? No, I'm kidding. They would none of my counsel. They would have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me, meaning unto wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God, the me in this passage is that wisdom which is from God, which the author personifies in his lessons. But those who hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. So we hope that walking in fear of Yahweh, he will keep adversity from us, although that may not always be the case, as even the Apostle Peter warns Christians, that they may face adversity so that their faith may be tried. In chapter 1 of his first epistle, speaking of the salvation of God, he says, Wherein ye rejoice greatly, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Rather than relying upon material wealth, Christians are consistently encouraged to store up treasure in heaven, for example, where Christ himself is recorded, as having said in Revelation chapter 3, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would thou wert hot or cold. So then because, in other words, I wish you were either hot or cold. I'm actually reversing the order of hot and cold here. I'm sorry. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not, in other words, you be very wealthy and not know, that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, because you have no treasure stowed up in heaven. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness does not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. And that's only done through reading the word of God, and having all those facts at your fingertips.
reading the Word of God, being infused, your mind, in the Word of God. None of us can be perfect. We are all men. But that is the only way to conform your mind to Christ. And when you put it to practice, that is the only way to store up treasure in heaven. By practicing real brotherly love. And in verse 19 of Revelation chapter 3, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Once again, the exhortations in Ecclesiastes are fully consistent with the gospel of Christ. Once Ecclesiastes is correctly interpreted. Now the preacher continues by recounting his own experience with prosperity and adversity, with righteousness and wickedness. In the later portion of this chapter, it becomes clear that the preacher is actually lamenting his own wickedness. All things, reading verse 15, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongs his life in his wickedness. The King James Version adds the words, his life, to the text, which are certainly not in the original, and they do not belong there. A man cannot prolong his life by his wickedness. Rather, in the verses which follow, the preacher seems to indicate that wickedness may shorten a man's life. (coughs) I'm sorry, I've had a slight cold all week now. Brenton Sethrugent has the verse to say, I have seen all things in the days of my vanity. There is a just man perishing in his justice, and there is an ungodly man remaining in his wickedness. We cannot tell with certainty whether Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes before or after his final apostasy. Here the mood seems to be reflective that perhaps these words were written in the final portion of his life, just before his death. We certainly do believe that that is the case. Because the, ex- because the experiences described here must have been accumulated while the preacher was in a state of apostasy as he himself indicates on several occasions. However, the text of 1 Kings chapter 11 seems to indicate that in the end of his days Solomon did not repent at all, as after Yahweh had admonished Solomon for his sins, and told him that the ten northern tribes would be given over to Jeroboam. We read that Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, unto Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And the rest of the acts of Solomon, and all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Another book which is missing from our Bibles. 
However, in the concise manner in which the books of Kings were written, it is nevertheless possible that Solomon did write this book in those last days. If that is the case, and we believe it is, then he is writing this in his own experience, from his own experience. Where he continues, he certainly seems to be speaking through experience. Be not righteous over much. We will clarify the language here momentarily. Be not righteous over much. Neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? The archaic language of the King James Version makes this passage difficult to read. Brenton's Septuagint has it to read, Be not very just. Neither be very wise, lest thou be confounded. Be not very wicked, and be not stubborn, lest thou shouldest die before thy time. The statement certainly seems to be in reference to the just man that perishes in his righteousness, and the wicked man that prolongs in his wickedness. A wicked man justifies his wickedness with his own self-righteousness, by which he destroys himself, mistaking it for wisdom. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He takes the wise in their own craftiness. Solomon had said in Proverbs chapter 26, that the great God that formed all things both rewards the fool and rewards transgressors. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Thus is the man who would think that there is something beyond God, or perhaps that he can be his own God and create things for himself. It is good, verse 18 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this, yeah, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. The New American Standard Bible has the verse to read, It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. The Septuagint has the last clause to read, For to them that fear God all things shall come forth. To which Breton adds the word well. The preacher seems to be telling us that it is necessary both to be not righteous over much and to be not over wicked. And heeding both warnings, a man will do well. The meaning of the Hebrew phrases is, correct, is correctly rendered in the New American Standard Bible, which has them to read, Do not be excessively righteous, 
and do not be excessively wicked. Of course, since all men sin and fall short of the glory of God, every man is at least a little wicked at some points in his life. But the man who is righteous over much, or evidently self-righteous, also does wrong and is prone to fail. For this Paul warned in Galatians chapter 6, that even when correcting a sinner, a man must be humble, where he said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, which ye, are spi- ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The preacher now speaks concerning true wisdom, the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of men. In verse 19, Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. Ostensibly this is true, but only of the wisdom which comes from God. As we have explained, Solomon counted as wisdom only that wisdom which comes from God. This is evident in Proverbs chapter 1, where he wrote that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in chapter 2, where he said, For Yahweh gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding, not out of your own imagination and that little vibration you feel inside you, which is really the cars running up and down the highway as you lay in bed at night. Wow, what a clown. For Yahweh gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keeps the paths of judgment and preserves the way of his saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity. Yeah, every good path. When wisdom enters into thine heart and knowledge is pleasant to thy soul, Discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee, to deliver thee from the way of evil. In his continual repetition, the preacher builds on this statement later on in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, where he wrote, This I also saw to be wisdom under the sun, and it is great before me. Suppose there were a little city and a few men in it, And there should come against it a great king, and surround it, and build great mounds against it. And should find in it a poor wise man, and he should save the city through his wisdom. Yet no man would remember that poor man. And I said, wisdom is better than power. Yet the wisdom of the poor man (coughs) is said it not and his words not listened to. The words of the wise are heard in quiet, more than the cry of them that rule in folly. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, and one sinner will destroy much good. Now the preacher substantiates what we said in response to his admonition not to be overmuch wicked, or excessively wicked.
For there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. As we have already cited, Paul of Tarsus wrote in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. David also, in the 143rd Psalm, made supplication to Yahweh in a humble manner, admitting his low estate, his sinfulness, and saying, Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness, and enter not into judgment with thy servant, David begging Yahweh that he not be judged for his sins. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. No living man shall be justified ostensibly because every man is a sinner. So we can't justify ourselves being overwise. Also, verse 21, also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise has cursed others. We read in Proverbs chapter 21 that whoso keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps his soul from troubles. But it is a very difficult thing for a man to do, to keep the tongue under control at all times. So the Apostle James warned in chapter 3 of his epistle, For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, the preacher had warned against being quick to anger and judgment. So therefore, our first impulse shouldn't be to be mad when someone close to us, even one of our servants, curses us. Our first impulse must be to be merciful towards those who may speak rashly. Because at certain times, as the preacher says here, we ourselves have also spoken rashly. So we take no heed unto all the words that are spoken. We have to let some things go. The preacher once again concludes, All of this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? And again we read from 1 Kings chapter 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much, and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. It just wasn't as deep as the ocean, as Solomon admits here. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, and his fame was in all nations round about. And he spoke three thousand proverbs, 
and his songs were a thousand and five, or five thousand in other manuscripts. Solomon sought wisdom. He prayed for wisdom from Yahweh, and his prayer was answered. Yet here he confesses that with all of his wisdom, there were still things that he could not know or understand. Which is also an expression of humility. So he continues in verse 25. And I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly even of foolishness and madness. This seems as if Solomon may be justifying his own experiment in mirth and in folly as an experiment in wisdom. As we also suspected in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 where he said in verse 3 there, I sought mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they do under the heaven all the days of their life. But whether or not he sought to justify his own wicked deeds, this is nevertheless a confession in the life of Solomon, who was granted great wisdom and then purposely chose to act foolishly. Here Solomon is returning to the theme of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where we saw that in spite of his wisdom, he purposely gave himself over to wine, to mirth, in order to purposely experience folly. And he concluded in part in that chapter, Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as far as light excels darkness. But as we have said before, Repetition is one of his teaching methods, and as he repeats his themes, the preacher also uses different perspectives or adds new elements to his subjects. Here he repeats the theme from chapter 2, and now he adds women, I'm sorry women, now he adds women as a new element to his subject. And I find more bitter than the death, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and her hands as bands. Whoso pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. And of course he's not talking about every woman. He's talking about the woman whose heart is as snares and nets and her hands as bands, meaning the woman who has the purposeful intention of trapping a man for her own use and her own desires. And whoso pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Evidently, the preacher already had the instruction found in Proverbs which very frequently warns its readers in regard to strange or adulterous women. We read in Proverbs chapter 22, The mouth of strange women is a deep pit. 
He that is abhorred by Yahweh shall fall therein. And I'm necessarily modernizing the language a little bit. Then in Proverbs chapter 23, where sexual licentiousness is the result of an abuse of wine, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. At the last, it bites like a serpent, speaking of the wine, and stings like an adder. Thine eyes, most men may have experienced this in a barroom, thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. In other words, in a state of drunkenness, it's easy to fall into lust and be taken away by desire. Solomon was indeed one such king. But Yahweh had mercy even on he who above all earthly kings should have known better. In several other chapters of Proverbs there are warnings in regard to the strange woman, the Zor woman, the Zor Strong's number 2114 is a stranger who is not necessarily a racial alien as well as the Nakri woman Strong's number 5237 the Nakri stranger who is an alien someone of another nation of another Adamic nation or of any other race as the word was used in the early portions of the scriptures for example, the word Nakri was used of Adamic Egypt in Exodus chapter 21 in verse 8, but of the Canaanite Jebusites in Judges chapter 19 verse 12. Azor can be a stranger of another nation, but it could be a person you don't know who happens to be from your own nation. The paramount warning against strange women in Proverbs seems to be in chapter 5. My son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that thy lips keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell, lest thou should ponder the path of life. Her ways are movable, that thou cannot know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way from her, far from her, and come not near the door of her house. Lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, this is what happens when you associate with strange women. This is what happened to Solomon. Lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel, lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger, in Solomon's case, his servant, one of his servants, to an ancient king, every subject in his kingdom was technically his servant. 
and that's even how the Roman emperors considered the typical Roman and the, the typical Roman and the typical Greek considered themselves slaves to their king because ultimately only one man in the nation has liberty in a monarchy and that is the king and everybody else is his servant so Solomon with his sin for his dalliances with strange women he gave or Yahweh gave as his punishment he gave his wealth and his honor over to a stranger and a whole line of kings of Israel who were strangers they weren't of Solomon's tribe lest thou give thine honor unto others and thy years unto the cruel lest strangers be filled with thy wealth and thy labors be in the house of a stranger and thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed and say how have I hated instruction and my heart desired reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly drink waters out of thine own cistern in other words stay with your own race don't create broken cisterns and running waters out of thine own well remain with the women of one's own race let not I'm sorry let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets thy fountains are the fountains of your own race let them be mine only and not strangers with thee don't mingle with strangers and let those bastardized waters flow abroad let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth which should be the woman who your parents arranged from you, for you a woman from your own community which was the custom let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love and why wilt thou my son be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger for the ways of man are before the eyes of Yahweh and he ponders all his goings his own iniquities shall take the wicked himself and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins he shall die without instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray but knowing this knowing all of this Solomon himself did not heed the next passage also informs us that the preacher certainly is Solomon towards the end of his life <coughs> verse 27 behold this I have found saith the preacher counting that word counting is added to the text we will discuss it shortly counting one by one to find out the account which yet my soul seeks but I find not one man among a thousand have I found but a woman among all those have I not found 
The word counting was added to the text by the King James translators. The addition of superfluous words to the text often damages the chances of a plausible interpretation. But admittedly, neither the New American Standard Bible nor the Septuagint interpret the passage the way in which we shall interpret it. In fact, all of the popular translations add unnecessary words to the passage in verse 27. Our interpretation is based on the simplest translation, which adds no words. Of all men, Solomon indeed had this, ex- had this experience. Let's read this again. Behold, this I have found, saith the preacher, one by one, without that word counting, to find out the account, which yet my soul seeks, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Of all men, Solomon did indeed have this experience. Where we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, and we've already read it, but we'll read part of it again. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, the wife of his youth. Women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which Yahweh had said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines. Note that that adds up to a thousand, right? And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and went not fully after Yahweh, as did David his father. Then Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Malak, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives." which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. In the ancient world, it was easy for a man to encounter and to get to know a thousand men. But women, both young and old, were sheltered. However, most men would never get to know a thousand women. Most men would only know the women of his own household and maybe some widows in in town or in the village. Maybe the wife of a good friend. Not much farther beyond that. However, a king could get to know a thousand women. And that is just what Solomon did, one at a time, as he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Most men never had an opportunity to know a thousand women intimately. But Solomon did. Towards the end of his life. So only Solomon, 
towards the end of his life, could say these things which the preacher says here. So where it says in verse 27, Behold, this I have found, saith the preacher, one by one, to find out the account. Solomon knew a thousand women. He knew them intimately, one at a time. And evidently he found none of them to be upright. And out of the thousands of men he must have known, he found only one upright man among a thousand. So the preacher once again concludes, Lo, this only have I found, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. And it must be noted that these thousand women that Solomon knew, many of them were strange women, so the comparison is unfair because most of the men were Israelites ostensibly and he only found one out of a thousand righteous among them lo this only I have found that God has made man upright but they have sought out many inventions Solomon's sin was that the strange women with whom he had been intimate ultimately led him off into idolatry and for that his posterity were punished and his kingdom divided we do not know exactly when the wisdom of Solomon was written the apocryphal wisdom of Solomon but we see similar language in a warning against such idolatry in wisdom chapter 15 but thou O God art gracious and true long-suffering and in mercy ordering all things for if we sin we are thine knowing thy power but we will not sin knowing that we are counted thine for to know thee is perfect righteousness yet to know thy power is the root of immortality for neither did the mischievous invention of men deceive us nor an image spotted with diverse colors the painter's fruitless labor the sight whereof entices fools to lust after it and so they desire the form of a dead image that has no breath both they that make them they that desire them and they that worship them are lovers of evil things and are worthy to have such things to trust upon in other words they wouldn't have Yahweh to trust upon they're such sinners that they're worthy to have dead idols to trust upon so once again we may determine that Solomon should have known better than to enter into his apostasy in the first place but to resist sin is the greatest challenge to man and even the wisest and greatest of men have been powerless in its grasp even David admitted this challenge as he prayed for mercy from Yahweh in the 40th Psalm withhold thou not thy tender mercies from me O Yahweh let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me for innumerable evils have compassed me about mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up they are more than the hairs of my head therefore my heart fails me 
Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Such is wisdom and the power of sin. That without the mercy of God, man cannot have enough wisdom to keep himself preserved from the power of sin. Here we find the most important difference and the most significant lesson in comparing the lives of David and Solomon. This concludes our presentation of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the enemy of all Jews, and good night.